The internet has certainly changed the world in many, many ways. And I think that's a given and pretty obvious to us today. But it's amazing how so many events that we don't normally associate with technology per se were impacted by our newfound interconnectedness. Today we're talking with Larry Press, who was part of some of these events years and years ago when really the internet, if we could even call it that, was little more than academic type people sending text to each other over phone lines. And as simplistic as that sounds, we'll be talking about doing just that, how sending text over phone lines played a role in a Russian coup attempt in 1991, as well as several other initiatives over the years for small nations and and large nations to make their way onto the global stage of information exchange. We're also joined by Kentik's Doug Midori, who is no stranger to analyzing how technology shapes geopolitical events. And my name is Philip Gervasi, and this is Telemetry Now. Larry, Doug, welcome today. So glad to have you both. Uh, Larry, for the first time meeting you, it's, it's a real pleasure. And then Doug, of course, uh, returning guest, both of you with uh, incredible uh, uh, histories in, in the technology space and in networking in particular. And Larry, just getting to know you for the first time and, uh, and then meeting you the other day prior to the show, some real amazing stories that I'm looking forward to hearing today. Now, I know that you and Doug have somewhat of a history. So Doug, I'm going to pass it off to you if you wouldn't mind kicking us off and uh, getting us started today. Yeah, so Larry, I'm so ha- happy to have you on this podcast. Um, I think you know, in these days we have we live in an age where the uh, the promise of the internet, for better or worse, is 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 here. Uh, but not that long ago, uh, this was something that was still a, a dream of a lot of people, and there were. Uh, we have a couple of celebrity internet founders like Vince Cerf that we talk about a lot, but there were a lot of other people who were uh, real pioneers. And uh, and what's wonderful about this moment in time is that. Those pioneers walk among us today still. They're in the industry, uh, and you can reach out and talk to them uh, about what it was like to uh, get the Internet off the ground in a lot of parts of the world. And that is something that's uh, a fascination of mine. But, um, and so hopefully, Larry, you can, you can t- talk a little about that. But um, I, I came to know Larry Press uh, maybe more than 10 years ago when I was fairly new to the industry as an Internet measurement guy. And I had been asked, I was at Renesis at the time, uh, which is a small boutique startup doing internet, uh, internet measurement routing. And um, I had been asked to try to get smart on how, how do we see submarine cable activations, cuts, and any kind of submarine cable activity in our internet measurement data, because it's a, it's a known difficult task the packets aren't marked by what submarine cable you're on, uh, routes neither. So it's a lot, there's a lot of inference. There's a lot of, uh, you have to kind of um, use a lot of out-of-band knowledge to figure this out. And so while I was getting smart on this, one of the stories that I came across, and I came, uh, came across it on the Internet in Cuba blog, uh, which was uh, the blog, blog that Larry has maintained for many, many years, uh, documenting the trials and tribulations of the development of internet in Cuba in that very unique environment. And so I learned of uh, the this ALBA-1 submarine cable uh, that was uh, financed by the um, Venezuelan government to connect the country, island nation of Cuba to the global internet and get them off satellite. And at that time, uh, the cable was supposedly built, but um, no one had any... Uh, any um, 
evidence of it. And so that started, um, you know, I started reading those posts by Larry. So there was a lot of speculation of what took place there with the cable. Had it been stolen? Had the money been stolen and then the cable was never built? Or, you know, maybe it's just being used by Castro himself or something. And uh, we had we had good data. We could see we could see this was just was, the country was still on satellite. And uh, so I shared a few graphs with Larry. He asked if he could post them on on his blog. I was like, go for it. You know, that's that's totally fine. And uh, and then the next thing, it was a, it was a headline in the Miami Herald uh, that Doug Midori from Renesis says there's no, you know, on the Larry, on Larry's blog post that there's no new news in Cuba. I was like, wow, there's a lot of appetite for this story, and I uh, really got into um, trying to. Um, uh, follow that closely, and that led to the discovery of the activation about a year and a half later. But uh, so, Larry, you uh, maybe you could take us bef- uh, back a little before uh, you know. I, I came to know you uh, maybe ten years ago, but that your interest in in the internet in Cuba was part of your interest in uh, helping the develop the internet in the. Uh, developing world. Um, do you yes. want to tell us about that work? Sure. Um, <clears throat> thanks, Doug. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize that, uh, we'd, man, it's been a long time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was uh, messing around with, with, uh, tell with internet before the internet existed. We, before, uh, TCP IP and all that. I, myself and a group of guys, uh, they were at the uh, University of Arizona and Stanford. Uh, when the internet came around, we had a, a group we formed called the Mosaic Group. And the Mosaic Group's charge was to, or interest, was to try to uh, both measure the, or study the, uh, integrate the uh, adoption of the internet in developing nations, and also, you know, kind of implicitly to encourage it. And so we had a uh, framework that we used to uh, do case studies, and we ran around as many places as we could and did case studies of the state of the Internet in uh, a given nation. We were were in Bangladesh. We did uh, Cuba. That's how I got to know uh, about Alba One and got to know uh, Doug, uh, but a number of other nations. And uh, we were just... Uh, monitoring the state of the internet, and but we were also really encouraging it. We we thought it was a wonderful thing. We were kind of naive. <clears throat> we didn't understand that uh, it could be used for nefarious purposes at that time. Uh, but uh, that's what we were doing, just trying to encourage and monitor the state of the internet. Larry, what so what was the time? What was the time frame for that? What year uh, was that group in operation? Oh goodness. I don't know. Nineteen <laughs> eighties. Um. Uh, yeah. Let me see if I can figure it out. Looking at the uh, the publication, yeah, it looks like the primary activity was throughout the nineties for the most part, the early nineties and the late eighties. Probably the early nineties. Yep, in the early nineties, um, and then uh, which makes sense because that's when we saw the first major proliferation of the internet as we know it today, at least. Is is that organization Mosaic still active in any way? No, no, okay. no. It, it was not. It served a, its uh, purpose. Yeah, Mosaic was not a formal organization. It was just a, a number of people from a couple of different institutes, places that knew each other, uh, and it it is no longer. At any rate, 
that was done in the early 90s to the mid 90s is when we were doing it and uh, at, at that time the internet existed but there was we were doing um, like I can remember doing a teleconference on teleconferencing using a, a system called eyes I think it was called uh, from um, geez I can't remember from some somebody back in New York had this system and so people were starting to do this kind of uh, thing but you know without the before the internet there was bitnet too that was connecting up universities uh so but you're right this was early in the in the existence of the internet and uh a thing that the the way cuba got connected and the way a lot of those nations got connected was the national science foundation had a program where they would help academic and research net, uh, networks in developing nations get connected to the internet. So, for example, in the case of Cuba, uh, Cuba, what, what NSF would do would um, help them uh, buy a router, uh, give them free transport on the uh, NSF net within the United States, and also help with the link from their country to, uh, to NSF net. So in the case of Cuba, uh, we paid for their first connection. We paid for a, a, a satellite link from Sprint to Florida and, and gave them internet connectivity. And that program went on for several years. I can't, uh, I could look it up and tell you, but there were maybe 25 nations that were uh, subsidized in that way by NSF. So that, that was a real, you know, a, a terrific contribution by the U.S. and also Ironically, uh, we were helping Cuba. Something I don't think we, we could imagine happening today, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that's the understatement of the year. <laughs> yeah, it's not even, yeah. Uh, the, both administrations, it doesn't make a difference, really. It's the same, ends up being the same, similar policy. Yeah. You know, the, the truth is, Obama really reached out to the Cubans and made a number of... Um, offers basically and the Cubans were not receptive um, it was this the stoppage there and then once uh, uh, Trump took over it was all over yeah I remember I so soon after the opening in um, so it was December 2014 that um, uh, we had announced uh, the intent to try to normalize relations with Cuba obviously that's ancient history now and it didn't really come to fruition, but the LACNIC conference, so the conference for uh, that roams around um, the Latin America, Caribbean, uh, this is like the uh, South American version of RIPE or uh, NANOG, uh, they scheduled one to take place in Havana. And so I went and um, that was my one time but I, uh, to travel to, to Cuba and meet some of the people that we've corresponded with there. But um, uh, again, I... I think t the times have changed. There was a there was a detente briefly there, but um, uh, I I don't see them hosting another conference anytime soon. So back to the uh, your the mosaic work and you know, those in those years. So there was another event uh, that took place that is uh, uh, you you had a role in that I think is it's um, maybe a a somewhat forgotten or undertold story uh, of uh, the, the, the role of the internet and um, or its precursor uh, in the uh, the coup uh, or attempted coup of um, 
1991. So just to set the scene here, this is um, the Soviet Union is still a thing, um, and uh, Gorbachev is in power. Uh, he's been relaxing, um, uh, you know, the uh, and trying to thaw relations with the West uh, over uh, over years, and not everybody's happy with that uh, as far as the authorities and um, the the old guard, and so. Uh, to in August of that year, there were some generals went rogue and they decided they would uh, arrest Gorbachev at his uh, um, uh, summer retreat on the Black Sea and take charge of the, the country. And along those lines, they they shut down um, communications at the time. A little bit uh, somewhat similar to the communication shutdowns we see these days, but but different in that the phone lines were cut. Um, you couldn't make a call in and out of the country. The uh, the news organizations, the radio, uh, was all either blacked out or they played classical music or ballet. Uh, was on TV to to be a completely information blackout. And the one channel to the West ended up being this connection uh, to the uh, this precursor to the internet. And and you had a role in that. Do you want to tell that story? Yeah. No, it was it was just by luck I was there at the time. Um, a friend, or again, we used the UUCP, the um, network news, to communicate asynchronously back and forth um, for some time before the sort of a, you know standard, a regular internet connection. And using UC, UUCP, I had gotten in touch with a guy called Yuri Gornostyov, who was um, he ran this sort of um, a data center in. Moscow, which served all of the all the um, scientific literature for all of the uh, communist nations, and so he, he had a, a big data center. He's a pretty big, uh, pretty highly placed guy, and uh, I'm not sure. So using this UUCP, this precursor network, he contacted me um, and asked me if I would like to help him organize a, an international conference on uh, HCI, on human-computer interaction. And I said, yeah, it sounded like fun. Uh, so we worked for, I don't know, maybe a year or so, and we put a conference together and got all the calls for papers and whatnot. And it was in Moscow. So at the uh, when the conference finally came up, I went to Moscow and we had our conference. And since I'd been using UUCP uh, to communicate with Yuri and, and other people, uh, I wanted to meet the people that were doing that in Moscow, the, the kind of nascent networking community. And um, so I just kind of I contacted them, probably using their own network, and ended up spending um, about a week in Moscow and a lot of that time hanging out with those guys uh, informally. I went to their place, went parties at their house, we went uh, swimming together and stuff. Uh, and so I just got to know him, and that was about that. And I came home, and about, I don't remember, a day or two later, the um, coup attempt that Doug just talked about occurred. And so um, I was there. Another guy that I'd invited to this conference was called Jonathan Gruden, from, and he's a, an American, but he was in Denmark at the time. And so once that uh, coup started... Like Doug said, all the media shut down, but um, UCP went on. And um, one of the people I was talking to said, uh, so we, we were able to com keep communicating. So 
Jonathan in Denmark and, and me in the United States uh, would be feed news from the outside back into Russia. And they, in turn, would use UCP to report to us what was going on. So we would, like, the kind of the main thing, that the biggest thing that happened was uh, Yeltsin, when he uh, stood up on top of a tank in front of the parliament and, and read a proclamation, he sent that to us. But we also got news of, of what was happening in different cities. So every uh, two hours or so, we would get an update and uh, on what was going on there. And for our part, we would do the same. We would give them feedback as to how the coup attempt was being reported in the United States and in Denmark. So it was kind of a really neat communication channel. <clears throat> and uh, another guy, uh, David Bozak, he was at State University in New York, uh, captured all this traffic and put it on an archive on a server at SUNY. And I'm not sure if it's still there. Uh, I it is. It, I was. You sent. You it? sent the link, and I was. Uh, I was going yeah. through it this morning. So we'll put that in the. Uh, if it's possible, maybe we can put that in the show notes. If somebody really wanted to dig into this story. Oh, put any, put all that stuff in the show notes. Yeah. So it's. Uh, that's a kind of an early example of kind of uh, catching real time history. I guess it's kind of a very. Yeah. What's interesting about that episode is that you know, like these days, uh, when a country, you know, like the same thing, kind of when that's when something similar happens these days, usually internet service is cut out. That's something where I end up, uh, you know, in our data, I end up, uh, you know, we, we contribute some technical details uh, to the coverage of that. Um, but the phone lines are often up, but the internet's down. Uh, but but in this situation. It was the reverse, where the phones were down, but the internet was up uh, only because nobody knew about it uh, at the time. It was kind of, um, you know, uh, I don't want to say insignificant, but it was just, you know, no, uh, not a lot of people. It was under the radar, man. Yeah. yeah. If you go through the uh, David's uh, archive, you'll see one of the quotes was a woman called uh, Paulina Antonova. And she ended up in the U.S., by the way. Uh, as did her husband, who was system administrator. And she she wrote something to the effect, on radio and t on TV, they only show old operas, and they don't know we exist, but if they catch us, they will kill us. I mean, it was really, uh, they were taking risk. Yeah, yeah that was a, was a courageous act. And then, um, you know, I only know about that story. So I had known you for a number of years. I mentioned this, uh, I went down to the LACNIC conference in Cuba. It was on the plane... While flying to Cuba, I was reading um, Andre Sadaltov's book, The Red Web, which is the history of uh, the Internet development and, um, uh, and the surveillance state and Russia and the Soviet Union. Um, uh, and now he's he was a pretty courageous, or he is a courageous Russian uh, independent journalist. He no longer can you know, reside in, uh, in Russia, uh, uh, given the... Um, the risks he faces. In fact, I think he's on the, the hit list of, uh, of Putin these days. But um, uh, he uh, he wrote a book, and he he writes this uh, you know from the Russian perspective this this uh, episode. But it named you, so I mean, I, it was kind of a it was, really? it was a weird. I'm on the plane to Cuba, reading a book about Russia, and in the book about Russia is about Larry, uh, who I know about Cuba. I was like, my mind was spinning. Uh, I was like, man, worlds are colliding. And I took a picture of it and I sent it. Um, I was like, gosh, I I I, I didn't know that about. Uh, uh, the, that you had been uh, involved in. I think I had heard that story, but I didn't know you, you were the you were the person. But you're in the book. Um, no, and, that's uh, cool. But what's another thing that's weird though is uh, in 
so Andre Sodatov, his father, was once. So the connection you guys were connecting to was was Relcom, which yes. I guess maybe at that at that time was still. Um, you know, it, it later became the first kind of ISP of Russia. Um, uh, maybe it wasn't at that moment, but the 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 present of Relcom was Alexei Soldatov, which was Andrei Soldatov's father. Um, uh, so it, there's like so many cross connects here. Uh, he ended up being the head of Relcom and um, later started the um, uh, like the Russian version of the NSA uh, uh, signal intelligence uh, outfit, which ended up being the subject of pretty much all of Andrei Soldatov's the son's reporting, which is. Again, it's um, it's a wild story, but I don't want to get too far afield here on the, the Russian stuff. But um, right, let, let me give you another little piece then on Andre. Go for it. Yeah, go I for it. I remember being at uh, at his house um, at a party or something, just with with the Relcom folks, and there was a teletype over in the corner, and he pointed out that the teletype he had dialed up his server uh, six months before that and just never bothered to hang up because they didn't meet her local calls in Moscow. So he is, he had a, a persistent online connection to, uh, well, just to his server um, at that time. But yeah, they were a really nice bunch of young people, two of them at least that I know of are in the U.S. now. So maybe uh, shifting back to, so then that brings us up to the, the beginning of the conversation of, you know, the... Um, you know, how we got connected on the, the, the plight of internet connectivity in Cuba. And, um, and so then, you know, I read your, your, your posts, we started corresponding and I, I think I made a promise like, here, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take, I'll keep, I'll keep an eye on this. And, uh, if it shows up in BGP, you know, I can set something up here. We'll, I'll get alerted as soon as it happens. Um, and I made, I set that up and it was another, you know, 18 months or so, uh, something like that, um, before I, one of my automated, things shot me an email and said, there's a new connection coming into Cuba. And I was like, Oh, well, that's interesting. And so then, um, again, back to the, the conversation about trying to detect things about submarine cables. It's not obvious. I know that it was like, all right, Telefonica now is a new transit provider for, uh, Atexa, which is a state telecom of Cuba. Um, that alone isn't enough to know that it has anything to do with the submarine cable, but, but we, um, had active measurements. We had traces we were, we were running uh, to every part of the world uh, continuously from servers all over the world, and we could see that the latencies had dropped. So the um, prior to that, the um, the latencies. Uh, so Cuba was entirely reliant on geostationary satellite service uh, for all of their global connectivity, and that was a product of uh, the embargo and all the submarine cables that were laid in the Caribbean all steered way clear of trying to not cross paths with the, the U.S. embargo against Cuba. And so um, uh, so they were entirely dependent on geostationary satellite, and geostationary satellite, one of the weaknesses is that it has a very high uh, latency just, just due to physics and the law of speed of, uh, speed of light, like a, a, it to send a signal out to outer space and back, you can't do it in under 480 milliseconds for a geostationary satellite. So that's usually a, a good threshold. If you're seeing latencies uh, coming in lower, uh, it can't be satellite anymore. And so we saw, um, uh, yeah, we were on our active measurement, we could see the latencies dropped to like 300. Like it was still kind of high, but, but definitely it could no longer be uh, both legs of the path going over a satellite. 
and uh, and then we kind of theorize like well, I wonder if it's like asymmetric like if the traffic's coming in um, over the submarine cable uh, in a way that we can't and we can't see the return path but the return path is going out out satellite and uh, and so it's asymmetric. Uh, I wrote that up in a blog and a couple of days later uh, we saw it's fixed or or you know they, then it dropped again and now both now it was a lower latency and it was a couple months later I was at another LACNIC conference in Colombia. Uh, and um, I met the director of Atexa and uh, and you know one of the um, organizers uh, asked you know welcome me to the conference like anybody you want to talk to and I had a few companies I needed to to, to speak with and then uh, and I was like oh but anybody from Cuba I'd be curious what their you know take is on the cable and he's like well you're you're in luck you're standing right next to the director of Atexa you want to meet him and I was like sure and so then the, I was like hey I'm Doug Midori from Renesis and the guy looked at my badge and he's like yeah I know who you are and I was like oh okay well hey congratulations on the cable I'm glad that, you know internet connectivity is improving your country I really am not uh, personally invested in the politics and um, and then he, then he without any prompting he was like you were right about the asymmetric uh, routing I was like oh like <laughs> that's funny I thought we were he's like we read your blog uh, and you're we like oh yeah we didn't change the uh, the outbound uh, traffic was still going over satellite which is why the latency was still high but um, yeah so then you know so Larry I mean, you've, you've done you spent a lot more time documenting uh, this than, than I have as far as you know, after the cable, which now in, in January this year, that's 10 years that that cable was activated. Um, uh, a decade has gone by and there's, uh, you know, I don't know, you want to tell it, like, what's what's the state, what, what's what's changed in the last 10 years since the submarine cable um, uh, came active? What's changed is uh, this. The um, When Obama went to, I remember at the time Obama went to Cuba, um, and uh, I can't remember the, I think it was the, uh, there were five or six proposals for new, for other underground, uh, undersea cables uh, at the time. Uh, and I think, Cuba, my, I don't know for sure, but my guess is that Cuba was um, not receptive. Cuba was kind of going through, it was, Castro was going out, he was an old man, and maybe they were conservative and didn't want to do anything radical at the time. I don't know anything about the politics. But there were uh, the uh, number of, there was a guy in the State Department told me there were five or six active proposals to do a, an undersea cable, uh, another undersea cable connection to the, to the U.S. Uh, and none of those came to pass. But one, Doug, I'm, I'm blanking out. What's the name of the, that Caribbean cable that goes... Um, around the Caribbean and it's very close comes within about uh, 60 kilometers of Cuba you talk about Arcos or the Arcos okay the, yeah there was uh, then a proposal they put in a proposal and this was after Obama was gone to uh, link uh, to have a um, link up to uh, to Florida and uh, I I can't remember all the the things that went on but the, it was looked at, it was put on a, um, on, on, there was a committee form to assess it. It was, it was supposed, a decision was supposed to be made really quickly, like, a, like uh, two months it was supposed to take to make a decision. And nothing happened. Uh, Trump got in, he set up some kind of a bogus committee to assess the problems of, <laughs> the possible problems. Uh, long story short, uh, just about six months ago they said no. It's, they turned it down. And so the Cubans now 
have got an undersea cable that goes uh, from Cuba down to Martinique. And so they now have a second uh, cable, not just the uh, the first one. I've been looking. I've been looking for evidence of that uh, in uh, uh, some active measurement uh, changes. I haven't seen anything, uh, but it. it um, so the cable was built by Orange France Telecom, yes. uh, who was already a transit provider for a Texa, who already had a foothold in Martinique. So it's possible uh, that the traffic's going through a path that was kind of already in existence uh, that would make it hard to pick it up from an internet measurement standpoint. But um, I do, there's a couple of right at ripe Atlas probes that I'm uh, running measurements from into Cuba to look for a change in the latencies. And um, I haven't seen anything, but um, my understanding is the cable is there. It's installed, but it's not operational. That's probably the case. I guess that was one that's... of the things I learned uh, early on in uh doing internet measurement around submarine cables was that there was usually one date for the press release uh, of, hey, the cables, and then there's another date when it's actually getting used. And um, and it's not necessarily anybody's lying. Uh, you know, there's just, there's two different, there's a couple different things that happen. You know, the one is the cable is RFS, ready ready for service. Like it's, it's this is operational. The guys have installed it. It's, it's um, uh, they've tested it. It's, it works. Uh, it may be a completely separate matter when the parties that make use of it uh, do their negotiations and figure out how they're going to, uh, you know, under what terms will they use it? This, you know, when lawyers get involved, this is not instantaneous. And so there sometimes is a, another period of time before, once that's all ironed out, then the engineers get the task to then, you know, start sending traffic down the line. So I know that in some of the um, uh, cable activations for like Pacific Island countries, those are pretty easy to pick out because it's like it's all or nothing it's either going to be you know higher latency low latency like you, you pretty dramatic changes and i would see the press release that you know country x ha now has a submarine cable and i'd look at our data and be like well it's all satellite still and then you know two months later all of a sudden the shift would happen and uh and you could see all right well that's the day that they actually started carrying traffic so it's not uncommon that there's a kind of an announcement or a press release uh, it even happened with um, in Crimea. So after um, uh, Crimea was annexed in March uh, 2014, and uh, Medvedev, the uh, I guess he was prime prime minister at the time, or I don't forget what they they skipped around in their roles, but he he made it made it a trip to Crimea to kind of to claim it for Russia, and then in the same breath uh, ordered Rostelecom, the state tele telecom of Russia, to build a submarine cable across the Kerch Strait uh, to link. Um, Crimea directly with mainland Russia, and um, uh, and I think within a couple of weeks, Ross Telecom put out a press release like the cable's done, and uh, I was looking at our data like I don't see any I don't see any change at all, uh, and I think like, it could be the cable could be done. I, I'm not saying they're wrong. I just like there's a way to see this uh, change, and then it wasn't until mid July that we saw traffic start uh, flowing, and then the ISPs in Crimea were we're putting out announcements uh, saying, you know, uh, you may notice that the latencies to things in Russia may be going down and those things, the latencies to things in uh, Ukraine may be going up because we now are, have cut over our connectivity. And, um, and that was exactly what we were seeing as well. We had uh, our own data to, see, to show that shift. But I guess it, also in Cuba, um, so the, so I think when this cable came out, it really wasn't mobile internet didn't exist. I mean, it, like 
they are so far behind uh, most countries in the world. Even developing countries usually get mobile internet going. As uh, They kind of just skip a generation. They forget the fixed line because that's a lot of work and just skip over to the wireless uh, stuff because you just need to put up some towers. Um, and so they didn't have mobile. There's no mobile internet. It was just Wi-Fi hotspots uh, in certain parts of the city and you see a cluster of people holding a device um, trying to get some service. Uh, then, I don't know, I remember, I can't remember what year it was, um, maybe five or more years later, then they got like 3G um, uh, mobile internet service. Um, and now, uh, I guess uh, it's, I don't know, I guess I don't know what the state of it is. It, it's in existence. People have it. Um, uh, I'm sure it's not great. Um, there was, there, there's always this issue of how much of the uh, the lack of development uh, of the internet uh, can you attribute to the Cuban government, which certainly is not really, uh, you know, not is not does not embrace uh, the the promise of internet connectivity, um, and uh, you know, to put it lightly, and then um, and then there's also these factors from the outside world uh, coming from the, the U.S. embargo. Um, so there's it's hard to see, hard to hard to tease apart. Just like just like the greater you know Cuban picture of the economy, how much of it is uh, the Cuban government and how much of it is the uh, embargo? Well, you know, the end of the day is it's it's in a pretty bad state, and there's um, definitely those those are the two main contributing factors. Yeah, they they um, you know one thing they did is an interim thing. They made a big push for uh, DSL. Uh, DSL at in your home or business be, became available. Really crappy, uh, spotty <laughs> service, and I mean. You know, the Cuban phone lines, the, the physical lines are ancient. And so I'm, I'm sure they were getting, uh, you know, you don't get very fast rates over DSL over any distance on bad phone lines. And that they made a big deal, a big push on that. Um, but I think you're right. And mobile, they're, um, they're up to, they're doing 4G. I, I, I tried to, well, you, you saw we were corresponding with... Uh, um, uh, another guy with Armando, to, I would like to get the latest statistics on, on the uh, amount of mobile and what generations and the amount of mobile connectivity. But I think it is, like you say, it's not very good. On the other hand, it's really made a difference. Um, people are using it and people are using it for kind of kind of political sorts of things as well as and cultural sorts of things. So even in its limited state, it's um, it's it's worth it's worth quite a bit. I, I guess you could say that it's uh, we know uh, the internet arrived in Cuba when they started having internet shutdowns uh, when there were protests because that really wasn't a thing in Cuba. There, there wouldn't there's no point in shutting down the internet if nobody has access to it. Um, and uh, you know that, that I think that really started uh, maybe um, let's see 2021, so only just a couple of years ago when. Um, uh, the um, uh, the protests started. The biggest protests in decades uh, occurred, and um, we had um, yeah, there was a, a, a shutdown. There was some multiple shutdowns of mobile uh, service, and uh, and I think you know, like you know, you know, it's uh, it's reached some. But, but there was a lot of, like you say, though there was a lot of stuff posted on a lot of YouTube videos. Yeah, people got the word uh, out of what was happening. The word got out, big time. Yeah. Um, totally. That's a good point. You know, I was gonna, just thinking another thing that to just mention back on the submarine cables. Um, 
you and it, the first link was to uh, Venezuela. There's also now a, a branch off to uh, Jamaica, I believe. And and the, the one thing I would add, it's not clear that Venezuela uh, financed it. it. Okay. There's. I have also read that China financed it. It could. Um, I, I guess I, I'm and, just going off of what I read. So. Um. Well, I'm going off of what I've read too. <laughs> I, I, I haven't done the research to know trace the dollar, yeah. the, the pesos back to where it came from. But no, and I don't think no. There's nobody that's giving a, a, a straight answer on that. But I do know one thing. I, I a long time ago I came across or somebody sent me a, a WikiLeak, um, just a thing that had been leaked on WikiLeaks, and what it was was a a um, a meeting. In which the um, the guy in the embassy, not the um, the financial guy in the uh, Chinese embassy, was complaining about how Cuba doesn't pay their debts. Uh, they were just really uh, having some tension there. They have some serious but, uh, financial issues. Or... But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, if China was at least involved in the in the construction of it. China, we're, we're hearing now all this stuff that China's doing now. So uh, yeah. And, but what you said is true. Is China doing it it's sort of nefarious and Cuba is letting them do it? Or is it because the embargo and we pushed them against the law and they have no choice? There's a lot of, there's a lot of debate there uh, on that. I was going to bring up the, the levels of pervasiveness that you, 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 know, you, you, you identified in the Mosaic group when you were talking about Cuba, you know, and the level of sophistication of the actual use of the Internet. And it's to that extent that we can judge whether this is successful or not, you know. You got a cable. I have just reading through it. It it makes sense. I mean, um, it is so we have this connectivity. Does anyone have access to the connectivity? Okay, so now we're starting to move in the right direction. Now that folks have access, is it changing the economy? Hopefully for the better. Is there anything? Is there anything that um, that we can identify as this uh, this activity that's you know international with the United States and China we're talking about all these countries and and paragovernment organizations is it having an impact on people's lives so it's it is an interesting i i get it that it's 30 years old i was in junior high when you were working on this um but uh, but certainly still very interesting and it feels very relevant still when we consider other developing countries in the world and how it you know it has changed their lives too i think that it hasn't had it's not like the connectivity we have here, where, like you say, it really uh, hugely facilitates e-commerce and so many other things. Um, however, I think that the biggest impact is it does enable people to talk to each other, to uh, organize protests in real time, um, and to it. It has facilitated the existence of of kind of an of alternative. Uh, publications both on the internet and off the internet and I can give you a, a plug for a book whose name I can't remember but I the exact name but it's an anthology that um, uh, a guy uh, Ted Henkin put together and there are a whole bunch of chapters on this kind of thing more on like what what it has come to mean the, the way that it's been used um, rather than the technology itself. I, I wrote the first chapter on sort of the history of the technology and kind of where the technology was as of that time, I think it was two years ago. Um, 
so if people want to kind of follow up and kind of know how it's being used and what impact it's having on in on the society on enabling other print and online publications um, ted's book is, is that, that's focused on cuba or is that other country yeah cuba it's cuba yeah it's focused yeah cuba no focused. it's cuba 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 all cuba okay 100 <laughs> cuba um Larry, it's been it's been great uh, chatting with you and hearing some of these stories, and uh, I look forward to uh, chatting with you again sometime soon and uh, learning more about some of this uh, some stuff of uh, you know how how the internet uh, came to be uh, in, here and other places, and um, it's a it's a really important topic. We should learn our history uh, because it um, it usually ends up uh, helping us out in the in the present and the future. Yeah. Oh man, it's it's been fun talking and. Uh, conversely, I really love the, the stuff you do. It's invaluable. Uh, well, thank you. Every time something goes down right away, everybody knows about it. And uh, Larry, I, I thank you as well. I agree with Doug, uh, considering that we take history classes in school, and here we are talking about the Internet, which has completely changed and shaped the world. Uh, and how much, how much uh, more important is learning about that immediate history while we still have our primary sources still available? So very much appreciated. So, uh, Larry, if, if, uh, if our listeners have a question or a comment that they'd uh, like to pass along to you, how can they reach out to you? Um, geez, I can give you my phone number, but I don't know if they can <laughs> that. Um, yeah, just, I guess the easiest way is send, send email. Uh, I Either to Larry Press, all one word on Gmail, or lpress at csudh.edu. Either way. Great, thank you. And, and Doug, how about you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, those are usually the easiest ways to reach out to me. Great. Thanks, Doug. And uh, I'm still active on Twitter, network underscore Phil. You can find my blog, networkphil.com. Search my name on LinkedIn. And uh, if you are interested in being a guest on Telemetry Now, or if you have uh, an idea for an episode, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out at telemetrynow at kentic.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.